As I said, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 23 at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This has been a really moving exercise for me. I know that, I hope that you've grown and and learned something from the time together here in the scriptures, but I, I grow far more by the study of the scriptures myself and preparing for these times together. And going through in depth the, the, the betrayal and then the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, it's been a long time since I have just really picked through these things. And it has been moving for me to see the humiliation and the suffering of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through these things. And through his betrayal and trial and crucifixion, his love and his faithfulness and his humility and his obedience... But I tell you, when we come to the cross and you start to really look squarely at the cross, it's, it's, it's emotionally moving. And I'm going to do the very best that I can to get through this today without being overly emotional. But it's something that it, eventually you begin to want to look away from it because you say this is of such great importance. But after we've looked at who Christ is and then we look at his suffering and his humiliation, Humility is when we choose to take the low place ourselves. Humiliation is when someone else puts us there. And through their mockery and through their hatred, they humiliate us. They intentionally bring us to a place of humility. And that's what we see happening with Christ today. And you look at the love of Christ and you say, how could Jesus do this for me? When you look at how undeserving you are and I am and how could Christ love me in such a way as to do these things and we see the perfection of Christ as I mentioned in my prayer it's just different things jump out at you at different times from studying the scriptures and one of the things that just really jumped out at me this time is that even in his death we've all seen people die and some people die well and some people don't die well but Jesus in his death in the perfection even of his death People look at him and say, this is truly, this is the son of God. And they believe in him even as he passes. And so this morning I want to start, before we read Luke 23, I want to to read Romans chapter 7. A little bit from there, Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, to introduce what are we seeing here in the cross? What is happening in the cross? In Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 20, the second part of verse 18, it says this, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What a, what a sobering, every one of us understands that verse. We have this sense of what we should do because of a conscience, because of the image of God in our heart, that we know what we ought to be doing, and we strive for it, but every single one of us keeps failing. And, and it just, it, it crushes us. I, I keep wanting to do what I should do, but the, for evil, I do not do it. And the conclusion that Paul reaches in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? If you've come face to face with yourself, you've come face to face with this reality. I cannot do this. I am trying to do this, and I keep failing constantly because I am a sinner. And I cannot undo this sinful condition. No matter the education that I get or the material wealth that I have, I cannot undo the human condition. I cannot reverse the moral corruption of my soul before God. And so what is, what is to happen with me? What is, what is my condition? Wretched man that I am. But then we go to chapter 8, verse 1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so what a powerful verse. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus has been condemned for you to the full. And when he was condemned for you, you might go free. R. Albert Moeller writes this, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ took the condemnation of the law upon himself. And God, through our faith in Christ, credits the righteousness of Jesus to us in the full. Thus, faith in Christ not only cleanses us from our sins, but gives us the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. The glory of the great exchange, Christ taking your sin upon himself and crediting his righteousness to you. And that is good news. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has met the righteous requirements of the law in himself, in his own body, upon the cross. We have it, this is why it's a center, central part of our, what is happening in this building, that we always look back to the cross and Christ meeting his requirements, the requirements of the law in his own body. Jesus humiliated that we might be exalted. Jesus crushed that we might have eternal life. Jesus cursed that we might be blessed. He was punished as guilty that you might hear one day the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is an amazing thing. This is the cross of Christ. Paul went about preaching Christ in him crucified throughout his ministry, and he was never able to reach the depths of it. So we will only begin to look at this this morning, but I want you to take it seriously and understand what Jesus is doing. So let's look at Luke chapter 23. I would ask you to stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Luke 23, 26 through 49. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. 
And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So to connect where we left off last week at the end of the trial with Pilate and this week in Simon of Cyrene taking the cross for Christ, I think it's important that we look at some of the other, one of the other events that is recorded in the mix of this in Matthew 27 and John 19. And that is at the very end of the trial with Pilate, how it says the entire battalion of Roman soldiers is gathered together for the specific humiliation of Jesus Christ. A battalion of soldiers is 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers brought together in order to mock and brutalize Jesus. It says that they stripped him of his clothes and put on him a purple robe and knit together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed in his hand as if he were a king. And he was flogged uh, deeply until he was bleeding. And in that occasion, they kneel before him, it says, and they mock him to his face and they spit in his face and they take the reed out of his hand and, and crack him over the head with it to, to beat the crown of thorns into his brow. And this is not the first of the day. Jesus has been pummeled like this since before the sun came up, beginning with the Jews, and at every stop that he has made, he has been mocked and brutalized and humiliated. He is at this point bleeding and weak, flogged, and he is carrying his cross. John says that he begins this journey by carrying his cross, and then it is passed to Simon of Cyrene when he is not able to carry it anymore. And it's important to understand what this means that he is carrying his cross because the, the cross beam is what he is carrying. The traditional way of people being crucified is that the, the upright was either on a hinge or there was already a slot for it in the ground, but the person would carry the large either four by four or six by six beam to the place of their execution and then that beam was fastened to the upright and then they were crucified to the whole thing. And so Jesus is carrying this until he cannot carry it anymore. And so someone is called from the audience to, uh, compelled to carry this cross for Jesus. But Jesus, even on his way to the cross, does not stop seeking the hearts of the people. They're weeping, some of them, the, the women that are following after, others that followed after him, come in behind the mockers and are weeping over what is going on. But he says, do not weep for me. 
And he goes on still warning the people of their sins and still is seeking their salvation and condemning their unbelief. The same message that he has been saying in a different way, he says it even as he goes to his death. And with him, two criminals go with him who are eventually crucified, one on his right and one on his left. But in verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. For Jesus to be crucified, it's important that we understand what crucifixion is. Cicero described crucifixion as the most cruel and horrifying punishment. James Edwards writes that every totalitarian regime, regime needs a terror apparatus, and crucifixion was Rome's terror. Crucifixion was what put fear in the hearts of the people. It was reserved for non-Roman citizens, and it was unleashed with maximum cruelty. People were either tied to a cross or nailed to a cross. We know from various other things in the scriptures that Jesus was nailed to the cross. And the spike would go through your wrist because it would hold there, and then two through your feet. But no organ or major artery is, is pierced there. And so a person would hang on the cross in agony until they asphyxiated or dehydrated or shock or loss of blood or something like this eventually caused this person to die after many hours of agony. And to enhance the deterrent effect of crucifixion, victims were executed as public spectacles. It actually uses that word here in the latter part of what we read, the spectacle of Jesus' crucifixion. Quintilian wrote, Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where most people can see and be moved by the fear of it. It was meant to be a deterrent, and it was meant to humiliate and cause the greatest agony possible. And when we get to this latter part of what happened at crucifixion, it's, it's hard to even say it because the thought of it is so repulsive that it's unthinkable that Jesus would do this for us. But the reality of it is, and we see it reflected in the scriptures, is that men were crucified naked in the Roman world. And when they gambled away his clothing, there is no sense that he was covered. That he is crucified in the greatest humiliation possible before the watching world for you and for me. Western art typically portrays an elevated cross with Jesus' feet nailed together. But in reality, from history, we are told that most crosses were probably near to eye level, which is even more shocking. The idea of Jesus not some high up place, but looking directly in the eyes of the people that are there and they looking at him. It's so personal and it's so incredible that Jesus would go through these things. But as we think about these things and what it means that Jesus Christ was crucified and is there upon a cross with a crown of thorns and a, and a message meant to mock him over his head, that what is the first thing that's recorded here in Luke that Jesus says to these people? In verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What incredible mercy. That is divine mercy and grace. 
This is the highest point of something that we see often in the Gospels where Jesus calls for us, commands for us to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us. And that the love of Christ keeps no account of wrongs. And that no matter what wrong is done to us or how many times or in what degree, that if we follow in the footsteps of Christ, we will continue to love those who are our enemies and seek their salvation. And so he says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And he extends grace to those who kill him. What is it that the Jews do not know what they do? It seems that they knew exactly what they were doing. But in reality, they didn't because they did not believe in him. They thought they were just getting rid of a competitor to their religious uh, scheme and their religious machine that they had going on. And they did not really understand that they were crucifying the Lord of glory, the Son of God. And the Romans certainly did not understand who Jesus was, but we know from last week's message that they clearly understood that he was innocent. And so even in a secular system of justice, they know they're doing something wrong. When you are doing what they are doing to this man and they know that he is innocent, you're doing something terrible and something that, is, that should not be done. And so, Father, forgive them. But 35 and 36, all the way down through 38, is just a record, and each one of the Gospels has different records of how these people so viciously mocked Jesus. Now that they have achieved what they wanted, which was to see him crucified, and he is there nailed on the cross, they take every opportunity to abuse him. He saved others, let him save himself. Come down from that cross, and we'll believe in you. If you're a king, save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, save yourself and save us too. Get us out of this situation. Mockers, scoffers. It always takes me back to Psalm 1, where blessed is the person who does not walk in the way of scoffers and mockers. This world is still full of those who scoff and who mock the name of Jesus Christ. And may we never be counted with them. May we always distance ourselves from those that mock the name of Jesus Christ. But we're told very clearly that there were two criminals crucified there with him, one on his right and one on his left. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that they begin by both reviling him. Because we need to understand that the crucifixion of Christ is a six-hour-long ordeal. That he hangs on the cross for a long period of time. And it seems that there is a progression, that it begins with both of these criminals railing at him and abusing him just like the rest of the crowd. But something happens to one of them during this period of time. Somehow this man watching Jesus as he is suffering and speaking from the cross and how he reacts to all of the hatred of those against him it changes his heart, and God softens his heart to where he comes to a place of repentance and belief by watching Jesus die on the cross. And in verse 40, it says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so it's important. He sees his own sinfulness. He knows that he is rightly there. He's condemned for exactly what he did. 
But Jesus is innocent. Yet another statement of the innocence of Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. He does not deserve this. Do you not fear God? And that is the beginning of all wisdom. The, the, the scriptures are very clear that the fear of the Lord or the, the beginning of understanding that there is a God and that we must reverence in awe, we must sit in fear of who he is, teaches us to honor the Lord. And so these other people that have no fear of God are mocking him, spitting in his face, reviling him in every possible way, but conviction comes upon the other and he rebukes his fellow and he expresses to Jesus his faith. He says, Jesus, in verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is not the standard statement of belief, but it comes from a heart that believes God, who fears God, and he's asking for the Lord to have mercy on him. A person, if ever there is a, a image or an example of a person in scripture that has absolutely nothing to offer to Jesus, it's this man. He, there will be no reform for him. There will be no changed uh, new way of life. He's getting ready to die at any minute. If there was ever a deathbed confession, it is this person. And he asks that the Lord have mercy on him and welcome him into his kingdom to remember him and not forget him. And Jesus says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Even in death, Jesus speaks in mercy to those who are near him. And this salvation, I want you to see, is the same in every basic way of any person that has ever come to salvation. It is a person that is convicted of their sins. When they see their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world around them, it brings them to a place of conviction when they compare it to the glory and the perfection and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And they say something's terribly wrong with me. It's not just finger pointing to the world, but I myself am a sinner. And look at this Jesus. Who is this and how merciful he is and the grace that he extends to me. It brings me to a place where I feel that I must call out to him to forgive me of my sins and express my faith in some way to him. I've heard the testimonies of so many people and how they came to salvation. And always at the end, it is the same. But the way that people express their belief to Christ at first is so different by many people in many ways and how it is that they were convicted of their sins and came to salvation. And so it is with this man. And I have to ask you this morning, you cannot pass by this without making it personal to you. Have you reached this place in your life? Have you stopped railing against Jesus and being a mocker and a blasphemer, or as the centurion that we're going to see later, just a skeptic who's standing by trying to just be a part of this event without really being a part of this event. Where are you in this? Have you come to call out to Jesus in faith? Do you fear God? Do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? I don't know. There may be some of you here that this person and the idea of this person being forgiven at the last moment of their life, even though they were a wicked, terrible person, is offensive to you. And you say, how dare, that, this, is, this is so wrong. This is what I hate about Christianity. This person's done not one thing, and now they're gonna go straight to heaven. I can't abide by that. What kind of religion is this that would teach such things? It's a religion of grace, of pure grace, unmerited favor. 
And if you haven't reached a place where you're okay with a person coming to salvation at the last moments of their life, then you really have not come face to face with what it means that salvation is truly by grace and that you bring nothing to Jesus. He is the one who pardons you fully and freely because of what he has done on the cross to meet the justice of God. And then by his great love for you, he extends this open opportunity of salvation to you. And even when you have absolutely, literally nothing to offer him, he is willing to forgive your sins. Absolutely. And this is what we see in this person on the cross. It is an important record for us to understand. Well, in verse 44, we begin to see the passage of time. He has been on the cross for three hours. The proceedings of the court took less time, started early, and took less time than what we would expect out of the long, drawn-out court proceedings of our day. But by noon, he is on the cross, the sixth hour, and it says that things begin to happen as Jesus' life is ebbing away. The Son of God cannot die without tremendous and earth-changing things happening. And so an eclipse occurs. Darkness comes over the world, which would make sense as the light of the world, as his life begins to pass away, that darkness comes over the world. And the curtain that separates the holiest place from the holy place in the temple is torn in two, symbolizing the, the nearness to God and man that is getting ready to happen. And then Jesus has last words, words that are important. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a very hard thing to, it's really an impossible mystery to understand how there could be some form of division or separation within the Trinity, but we understand what is happening from what has been said about our sin. When the guilt and sin of the world is laid upon Jesus Christ and the Father turns away from it, because we understand that, that the wages of sin is death or spiritual death. It is separation from God. So how could all of this sin and death be laid upon Jesus and have no effect between the relationship between the Son and the Father? And so there is an effect. In some way, the Father turns his face away from the Son who he had said so clearly, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Always the Father, his face turned towards the Son, always strengthening the Son. But in this final, last moment of our atonement, the Father turns his face away for the guilt laid upon Jesus. Our sins, my sins, and yours. In John 19, Jesus says, it is finished. What was finished? It's really important. What was finished is that Jesus had done all that the Father had given to him to do. He had fulfilled all scripture, all that was prophesied, all that was said that he would do. He did all of it. And he had accomplished all of the Father's will. Jesus goes about throughout the scriptures continually saying, I am about my Father's will. I'm here to do my Father's will. Completely single-minded, not interested in anything else, but doing God's will. And when he comes to this last time, this last moments on the cross, it's done. He did everything that God the Father had called for him to do. Everything was fulfilled. And here in verse 46, Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. And Jesus dies on the cross. The thought of the Son of God dying in such a way is something that is worth contemplation and worth not just passing by quickly. Because there's something radically important here. It is the most important thing that happens in human history, followed then by his resurrection. And there's three observations that I'd like to make about the cross of Christ. Various things. The first comes from us from John uh, chapter 19, verse 27, which to me, you just can't pass by this without looking at this. In John 19, 27 and 28, you have Mary, Jesus' mother, there by the cross. And this idea of the cross being lower and her being looking at him is just a, an in, incredibly emotional situation. And John is there with her, and Jesus says from the cross, behold your son. Like, look at, she, he wants her to see him. And then he says to John, behold your mother, which he's transferring care of his mother from, from himself to John. And it says from that day on, John took her into his household and cared for her. But I cannot imagine the level of confusion in Mary's heart. When the angel Gabriel came a long time ago and said, Jesus, the, the Messiah is going to be born to you. Oh, this is, going to, this is so exciting. What a joyful thing. May the will of the Lord be done to me. This was not revealed to her. I cannot imagine what her thoughts were at this point in time. What in the world is happening here? I cannot grasp this. And the sadness and the brokenness of her heart in seeing Jesus, whom she has followed and who she will continue to follow after his resurrection, dying in this way. The walk of faith is never easy. And I guarantee you there will be things in your life, perhaps right around the corner tomorrow, that will be agonizing and difficult to walk through and will require you walking in the sufferings of Christ in some way because the Lord does not tell us about these things. He says, follow me, walk with me by faith one day at a time, and it is enough that you follow me today, and then tomorrow you will follow me again. And so he does not tell them, he does not tell her what was to come or what is to happen, but she walks by faith. Second is the centurion. In verse 47, he is in three of the Gospels. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. A centurion is a leader over a hundred. And so he was possibly the one that was in charge of this affair. And he's standing back, and his overall conclusion when it's done is that he was innocent, or as it says in one of the other Gospels, truly this was the Son of God. What do you do with that when you're the one that presided over this and you recognize at the end of it, I have just crucified and humiliated the Son of God? That's a terrible place to be in when you realize that you have radically gone wrong, that you're, whatever you thought was happening and you come to a realization that that's not what was happening and something very different is happening, where do you go with that? Thankfully, there is salvation through grace. And Jesus has already called out to remind this man that he is willing to forgive 
even those that are crucifying him. And so it is amazing to see yet another man, a hardened man, a person with a soldier's heart, having compassion and his heart being moved and changed at seeing the way that Jesus dies. And the third observation about the cross comes from the Gospel of John in John 19. It says that after this, after he passed away and breathed his last, that when they went to break the legs of the other men, because that's the way they sped up the crucifixion death, because they could not press themselves up to breathe anymore if their legs are broken, and they come to Jesus and they think he is dead, and so they take a spear, and again, to fulfill all prophecy that none of his bones would be broken, they jab him in the side with a spear, and it becomes very evident that he is dead. And it's important because it says in John that the person who testifies to this, it says specifically his testimony was true. Why does that testimony matter? Because it means that he was really dead. And him really being dead is essential to him really coming back to life. And this, is not, this should not be a hard thing for you to grasp. The Romans were excellent at killing people if they were good at anything. And they killed Jesus on the cross. And the idea that crucifixion would end in someone that did not actually die is not the Roman way. And so Jesus really did die on the cross, really did breathe his last and dies. And when he dies, the attitude of the scene changes. It says, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. We read from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where he speaks of this. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's weeping. When you realize that your only child or the only one that you had your hope in dies, where do you go from there in life? And this is what so many people had. Their hope was in Christ. They believed that he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. And they don't know where to go or what to do with this. As we close up with this, I want you to see that the cross of Christ is not a tragedy because of what will happen next week that we talk about. Three days later, when Jesus raises from the dead, it would be if it were not for his resurrection. It is not a moral example. It is something that is of tremendous spiritual significance. It's something that accomplishes something before God that had to be accomplished in order for us to have a way of salvation opened to us. And Paul spends his entire life in ministry expounding this. I come to you preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified. You must understand what the cross of Christ is about and what is actually happening here. And no matter how little of it you may believe, if your heart has never been tender towards these things, and like this, cross, this thief on the other cross, and you look at Jesus and you say, I know there's something true here. I know that I am a wretched person and a sinner, and I need forgiveness for my sins. Call out to Jesus that you might be forgiven. And then from there you grow in understanding who he is. And so I want to end with Colossians chapter 2 this morning. One of the verses that, G, that uh, Paul wrote in writing to the Colossian church, 
about Jesus Christ and about his cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Such beautiful verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus Christ died for our sins but made alive again, having forgiven us of our trespasses and sins. It's not enough to try to change ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot elevate ourselves to a place where we can get out of the human condition. We must be forgiven. We must be pardoned by grace. And Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. We've been talking about this for weeks that there is a judicial record. God keeps a record of sins because he is just. And the record of that, that legal demand must be paid. And so it is paid by Jesus Christ. And your debt for sin and my debt for sin is nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ that we might be forgiven. And in Christ Jesus dying, it says that he disarms the rulers and authorities and he triumphs over them. Next week, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he overcomes all that is evil and makes a way for salvation. And it is the most glorious thing, literally, in all the world. And so I hope and pray that you understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that you this morning believe in him as your Savior. I pray that if you have a hard heart, that you will soften that heart, that you will humble yourself before Jesus Christ and that you will believe, that you will react to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart and that you will place your faith and your trust in Jesus as we have seen two people do today already in this passage, each in different words and in slightly different ways, but the heart had changed. Hope in Jesus Christ today and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the historic reality of the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It is one of these things that we can only begin to understand, that we can, as Christians have for thousands of years, continue to contemplate the cross of Christ, continue to look back at it, to continue to look at all that is written about it in the complexities and the depths and the beauty of the great salvation of Jesus Christ but it begins with simple conviction of sin and the realization that we need a Savior and confessing our sins and seeking forgiveness because we fear God and we understand that we are wretched sinners. And so, Father, I pray for these things. I pray that there would be no one that leaves today without seeing the cross of Christ for what it is and putting their faith in Him. And every person here that is a Christian that we would look back again to the cross and that we would continue to lay down our burdens at the cross of Jesus Christ and understand that salvation is not an issue of performance. It is a thing of grace. It is freely given because of the kindness and the love of God towards us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the cross of Christ. Help us to see and understand what it is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.